Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So last week we kind of did a, a, a introduction, an introduction uh, for chapter one, and we went all the way to chapter two, verse five. And really the, 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 the message was Jesus is superior. And in chapter one, we looked at the fact that Jesus is superior to the prophets. You know, the prophets, uh, all those Old Testament prophets, God's message came through them, but it was in fragments. Whereas in Jesus Christ, we learned last week that God's message is complete in Christ. We also uh, studied or talked about the fact that God's message was revealed over time to the prophets. And God's message in Jesus Christ is his final message. There is no other revelation of Jesus Christ. His message is complete and his message is final to man in Jesus and we also talked about the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, you know, we, we studied the fact that he is the creator, so he's eternal, whereas the angels were created and they're finite. We also studied about the fact that he is the heir of all. He is the heir of all and they are servants. And of course, we also looked at one of the big things about Jesus Christ, one of the fundamental things is that he is fully God and the angels, they worship him. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. Well, chapter two continues with how Jesus is superior to the angels, but it's in a way that might be a little bit of a kind of a surprise to us. It's from a different perspective, and that's this, that Jesus is superior to the angels from the pr perspective of his glorified humanity. And why I say that this might be kind of like, what? Because, you know, if you think about it, angels are more powerful than man. We know in uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, a single angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. That's pretty strong. So they're more powerful than man. We also know that from scriptures that they can transform their forms, that they can appear as humans and they can appear as they are in heaven as angels. And, and, and so they have that power to transform. How many of you would like to have the power to transform your physical shapes right now? I mean, I would. <laughs> I'd like to look like Charles Bronson, or not Charles Bronson, Charles Atlas, you know. Um, I don't want to look like Charles Bronson. <laughs> no offense to him, but <laughs> anyways, you get the idea. So they're more powerful than men, man, I should say. They can transform themselves, and also they're not confined to space. They can travel between earth and the world that we see around us, and they can appear before the Lord in heaven. So they have those abilities. So they're greater than man. And so why is Christ's glorified humanity greater to the, what makes him more superior to the angels? Well, we know from chapters one that we talked about was that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. He's not like half God and half man. He's fully God and he's fully man. And that was God's point or God's plan, I should say. And so the first point of the message, and this is a four-point message this morning, but the first point is that his humanity is why the Father will put the world to come into subjection to him. And you see that there in verse 5 of chapter 2. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The world to come 
will not be put in subjection to angels, and the world that is was not put into subjection to angels. Look at verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. The writer of the Hebrews is quoting from Psalms chapter 8, which is a psalm that David wrote. David, the shepherd, he's probably sitting out on the hillsides of Bethlehem some night watching sheep, the sheep that he was in charge of, and looking up at the stars and seeing their glory and just amazed that God has put, uh, you know, man is a little bit lower to the angels, and we talked about it, they're, you know, angels are stronger, they're able to transform themselves, they're able to pass between this dimension and the spiritual dimension, and yet, as David's thinking about that, he says God has crowned man with glory and honor by putting creation under man's subjection. And you might say, well, when, when did that happen? When was the world put in subjection to man? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But look at what it says there in the second half of verse 8. But now... We do not yet see things, excuse me, let me read it over again. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. You know, sometimes the Bible does these wonderful understatements. And talk about an understatement. We don't see the creation and subjection to man right now. You know, think about the wild animals that, you know, every once in a while you, you, you hear about a, a herd of elephants trampling down somebody or, you know, uh, hikers jogging through uh, the hillsides in some of these states and the western states and a mountain lion comes out and, you know, kills them and stuff. Wild animals are not in subjection to man. Look at the natural disasters that go on through the world. So, you know, we look at the world around us and we go, man, it doesn't seem like creation is subjection or subjected to man right now. But it was at one time. What happened? Well, it's one simple word. It's sin. Sin's what happened. The first Adam blew it. And as a result of his sin, he forfeited the dominion of the creation over to Satan. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he calls Satan the God of this age. Jesus called Satan in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world. Paul called him also the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works, who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
You'll recall that Paul also said this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. So right now, the devil has dominion over this creation of the world that we see around him. You know, and you might say, well, I don't, I, man, I'm not sure if I follow that. Well, listen, remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness? In Matthew 4, verse 8, it says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Notice that Jesus, if you read that account, Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, that's not true. You don't have dominion. Jesus didn't argue with him about that. We know from scriptures that the sin of pride is what caused Lucifer to rebel against the Lord God. We know that from scriptures. And pride is a root behind all sorts of sin. I have a theory, and uh, the theory that I have is that the reason Satan tempted Eve to sin against God was because of his jealous pride. Because if you think about it, Lucifer, Lucifer felt that he deserved to be worshipped in the place of God. And as a result, of course, you know the story, he was cast out of heaven. And yet here is man, a little bit lower than the angels, and like David said, yet he's crowned with glory and honor. That's what Lucifer wanted. He wanted the glory. He wanted the honor. He wanted to be worshipped. And so he's, my theory is that's why he tempted Satan, or excuse me, tempted Eve, was because he was jealous, envious. And you know, jealousy and envy Man, I tell you, it's a dangerous thing. You know, when we get envious of other people, we get jealous of other people, you know, there's pride that's, that's kind of the source behind it. Because it's like, when you're jealous of somebody, you're envious, it's like, I deserve what they have. I deserve it more than they deserve it. That's what envy and jealousy is. It's pride. And so we have to be as Christians... And, you know, we live in a culture, a very materialistic culture, and it's easy to look at other people with nicer cars or nicer homes or, you know, maybe have nicer families and stuff. And it, it's easy to get envious of other people. So we have to just guard our hearts in that area. Jealousy is a dangerous thing. And I think that's why Lucifer tempted uh, Eve, because he was jealous. And so the dilemma that the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that right now God's this, uh, Satan is the God of this age. He says, but we do not yet see all things put under him. But look what he says in verse 9. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus. I love that. I'm going to read something to you. It's out of Micah chapter 7. Tell me, well, you don't have to tell me. I don't want you to speak out, but <laughs> just think about it. Tell me, or don't tell me, think about the fact that doesn't this describe a growing trend in our day and age? Listen to this, Micah chapter 7, verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. 
The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. That's pretty, that's pretty bleak. And I'm not saying our culture is there, but, but you think about it. That's a growing trend in our society, in our day and our, our age. But the writer of Micah, Micah says this, Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Such an important concept for us. When things are out of control, and if you look at our society, it seems like things are getting worse out of control, that evil is abounding around us. And you know, it, it is. But that's what we need to do. We need to look back to Jesus. See Jesus for who he is. See Jesus for what he's done to us, or done for us, and see what he will do. I mean, read the book of Revelation, you know, those things. So we, we're to see Jesus. So the dilemma is that Satan is the god of this age. Well, when will creation be made subject to the Son? If you have your Bibles, turn over to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is what John says. He saw, he saw this. He says, I saw, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because there was no one found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Very interesting passage that John saw. Scrolls were normally only written on one side, on their smooth side. There's one exception in Jewish history, according to John Corson. I'm, I'm quoting him here, or not quoting him, but referring to him. He said that there's only one scroll that was written on both sides, and that was a title deed. And so what a title deed was is you were to purchase a property, a tract of land or something. The, the, the contract would be written on the smooth side of the scroll. It would be rolled up, and it would be sealed with a single seal. Now, if for something like maybe you got laid off from the falafel factory or you know, somehow you couldn't make your, your, your financial obligations, then what would happen is that scroll would be taken from you and your debts would be written on the outside of the scroll and it would be sealed with more seals, up to, up to seven seals. And so what this John is picturing here, the Jewish people in that culture, they know right away what he's talking about. He's talking about a title deed. A title deed where it was passed, it was handed over. And the debts, there was debts on it and it was sealed with seven seals and no one was... Uh, worthy to open that. What are we talking about? Well, the first Adam relinquished his dominion over the creation because of sin. The last Adam, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is worthy to take back the scroll 
and to break the seven seals because he met those obligations that were written on the outside. It's because of what he accomplished as the son of man. There's a parallel scripture, by the way. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. See, Jesus Christ, the glorified man, the Son of Man, he regained his glory when he was resurrected, and very soon he's going to reclaim the title deed to the earth. And the God of this age, as the Bible describes Lucifer, he'll be, at that time, he'll be bound for a thousand years, and then at the end of that time, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. So right now, we don't see that around us, but we see Jesus. The second point out of this passage here is that his humanity enables him to bring many sons to glory. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was fitting for Jesus Christ, who is fully God, to become fully man so he could be the captain of our salvation. The captain is a pioneer. Is what it, that's what it means. The pioneer of our salvation. He's the leader who blazes the way for his brethren. And it was fully fitting for Jesus Christ to be fully man so he could be made perfect through sufferings. That kind of raises a question. Wait a minute. Does that mean the son? That means Jesus Christ was imperfect? No. Listen, his family and his friends, the people that knew Jesus from the time that he was born until the time that he started his earthly ministry, for 33 years, they knew him. They were able to test him. And they basically had nothing but good. To, they, they couldn't find anything bad, you know, anything imperfect about him. In fact, uh, on Wednesday nights, we're studying the Gospel of John. We're studying through that. And, and John the Baptist, um, we were talking last week about the baptism of John the Baptist. And I know it's not in John, but it's in one of the other Gospel accounts. When Jesus walks over to John to be baptized by him, and John, by the way, is like a second cousin. He's either a cousin or second cousin of Jesus Christ. He says, man, I am not worthy I mean, you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. Why? Because for 33 years, he observed him and knew that Jesus was perfect, that he hadn't sinned. You know, it wasn't just his family, his friends, and people that knew him that proclaimed his innocence. One of his enemies, Pilate, the Roman, the Gentile who was in charge, who, was, who he thought he was in charge of being able to crucify Christ, he said this, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. Indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Pilate said, no, nah, I can't find anything wrong with him. Even the one who betrayed him, Judas, he says, I betrayed innocent blood. 
Remember the thief. There were two thieves that were crucified, one on one side of Christ and one on the other side of Christ. One of them said this to the other thief, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The father himself, he said this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All the prophets from the Old Testament, and I'll just quote one of them, he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. All of these looked at Jesus as he's perfect. There is no imperfection in him. In fact, the resurrection itself proclaims Christ's perfection. Why do I say that? Because a crucified sinner would just be stuck in the ground. He wouldn't come out of the grave. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His perfect sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And the grave couldn't hold him down. The grave couldn't keep him. So was the Son imperfect? No. Answer resounding no. He knew no sin. Well, then how does it say that he was made perfect through suffering? It's a good question. Listen, as God, God will never experience suffering and death. God doesn't suffer and God doesn't die. He will never experience that. So in that sense, the Son of Man, who is fully man and fully God, is made perfect. And that word perfect actually means complete through sufferings. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 2. For both he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I would declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This just always floors me when I read that. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. And sometimes I'm ashamed of myself. And yet he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. But that asks a question, are we ashamed to call him our Savior? He's not ashamed of us. Are we ashamed of him? The third point that we see in this passage of Scripture is this. His humanity enabled him to defeat the devil. And that's something that no angel could ever do. Look at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Look at that, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That word destroy doesn't mean to annihilate Satan. It means this, it means to deprive of force, to de deprive of influence, to deprive of power, to render useless, to render ineffective. That's what he did. That, he completely destroyed the power of the devil. Well, how did the devil have power over death? I mean, he doesn't have authority to kill anyone. I don't know if, you're, if you realize that. He does not have authority to kill anyone. We saw that in the book of Job. God gave permission to, to, to Satan to, to harass and to afflict Job, but he said, you, you can't kill him. And so Satan needed permission to afflict, but he couldn't kill him. So Satan doesn't have authority to kill anyone. In fact, Jesus says this in Revelation 1.18, I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
So he doesn't, in that sense, he doesn't have power. But listen, Jesus as the son, and we talked about it here a few minutes ago, he's the pioneer of our salvation. He's the author of our salvation, the New Testament says. And so just as he is the author of our salvation and the pioneer of it, Satan is also the author of sin and the pioneer of sin. He introduced sin into the world. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees and those who were, who were trying to test Jesus there in John 8, 44, he said, you were of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. He's the author of sin and he's also the author of its consequences. Sin has consequences. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So he still, even to this day, tempts men to sin. And then we know the Bible says that he accuses them before the Father. So he tempts them to sin, they sin, and then he goes, look, look what, look what so-and-so did. So in that sense, he has the power of death because there's a consequence for sin. But Jesus Christ, the Son, the glorified Son, the glorified human, took our sin on himself. He died in your and my place, and he conquered sin and death. And because he's perfect, because there was no sin in him, he was sinless, his death makes atonement for you and for me, for my sin and for your sin. His resurrection makes eternal life possible for you and I. And so I've got good news for you. If you have a relationship with Jesus this morning, Satan has no power over you. If you have put your trust in Christ as your savior, Satan has no longer any power over you. He still has power over some people though. He has power over those who continually continue willfully in sin and rebellion. Those who uh, are still in rebellion against God. The Bible says they're slaves of sin. I like what F.B. Meyer said. Our elder brother has encountered our foes and won deliverance for all who believe. Death remains, but its teeth are drawn and its power is annulled. So what else did the son's death and resurrection accomplish? It says he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, the Bible teaches that before Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin. And the natural outcome of that sin is death. And so we we're in bondage to death as a result. I like what Paul wrote in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? If you if you're, uh, don't have a relationship with Christ, you are a slave to sin. You might say, I'm not a slave to anyone. You are. You're a slave to sin and its eventual outcome, which is death. But the believer in Christ... We're slaves as well, but we're slaves to Christ. But you know what's interesting? The Bible doesn't call us slaves in the sense of uh, just a slave that's, you know, you're, 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 you have no choice in the matter. The Bible calls us bond slaves. A bond slave is someone who is still a slave, 
But it's someone who's like, you know what? My master is so good. I want to stay a slave to my master. I, I'm will, choosing willfully to be in slavery, to be in bondage to them. And what uh, Romans 6.22 says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So those that have not given their hearts to Christ Jesus, they're in fear of death and they're in bondage to it. And you know, you look at our society around us and fear of death is everywhere. Think about the great amount of expenses that are put in, spent by people trying to prolong the inevitable, you know, trying to, to, to hold it off as much as possible. How much money is spent into it? Think about how much energy is expended trying to prevent the inevitable. Um, I have a friend, um, guy that I knew back in California, and, and we were talking about exercising one day, and he, and he basically said, I don't exercise. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, I've got this theory. He said, my theory is that God has given each person a certain amount of heartbeats in their life. When, those, when that's up, they're done. He says, so I'm trying to conserve mine as many as much as possible, so I don't exercise. So I thought, hey, that's, a, that's kind of a good, uh, it's a good model to live by, so I'm kind of trying to follow the same thing. I don't want to use them up too fast. So <laughs> when you think about it, how much energy is, is expended in people because they're afraid of dying? how much time they put into it, and they're trying to prolong the inevitable. You know, there's only two things in this world that you can count on, right? Death and taxes. That's kind of, we realize that, right? But people don't want to talk about death. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to face it. People are afraid of death. They're in fear of death. They're in bondage to it. You know, I have news for you guys, and. I don't know if you know this or not, but the statistics have never changed. 10 out of 10 dentists die. They do. Um, so death is inevitable. You know, just as there are two births, the Bible talks about our natural birth and then, of course, our spiritual birth. John said, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, that's a second birth, he'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So there's a natural birth and there's a spiritual birth. There's two births. There's also two deaths. There's a natural death, or what the Bible calls it, the first death, and there's also the second death the Bible talks about. It's everlasting torment and the lake of fire. And so every person on this planet has a choice. They can be born once, they'll end up dying twice, or they can be born twice and they'll only die once. I know what, cho I know what choice I've made. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You know, fear of natural death is just that. It's natural. It's natural to fear death. But you and I, as a believer in Christ Jesus, we don't have to fear death. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I remember when my father passed away. It was shortly before he passed away, and we knew that he was, uh, you know, he came home from the hospital basically to, to die at home, which was, man, he was, he was 
he was thankful that he could die at home. He didn't want to die in a convalescent home or anything like that. And so we brought him home. And, and one thing he told me, he said, you know what? I'm afraid of the process of dying because I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death because I know I know whom, whom I believe, you know, he had a relationship with the Lord. And so, yeah, to, to fear death is natural, but you and I, we don't have to fear because Christ has set us free from the bondage to sin and death. And as a result, we're free from the fear of death as well. So the fourth point and the last point I want to make this morning, his humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest. I'll read that again. His humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest. And we see that in verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Verse 16 there qualifies who he gives aid to, and that's the seed of Abraham. And so right away, we say, wait a minute. Does that mean the Jewish race? Well, the Pharisees thought so. In John 8, verse 39, Jesus said to them, or they said to Jesus, they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What's the works of Abraham? The Bible says Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. He put faith in what God told him, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul says this in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, means if you've put your trust in Christ for your salvation, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is he doesn't give aid to angels, but he does give aid to those who are by faith the seed of Abraham, which hopefully I, I pray everyone in this room and everyone watching is a, is a seed of Abraham because they put their trust in Christ for their salvation. So verse 17, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So as you're my high priest, he's faithful. Chapter 3 is going to talk all about that. We'll be looking at that next week. But as our faithful high priest, he makes propitiation for our sins. That's kind of a tough word. It's not a word you hear too often in our, in our vernacular. What propitiation? What it is, is an aspect of reconciliation. Reconciliation, there's a need for reconciliation when two parties... Are at in, in, they're at variance with each other. I have to reconcile my checkbook because my checkbook says I've got I got all kinds of money, and the bank says no, you don't have quite that much money. And so there's a there's a, there's there's a difference there, and so I have to I have to reconcile it. I have to make it to come to an agreement. And because of your and my sin, we're at variance with a holy God. And so this is a, the best definition I found for propitiation. His sacrifice as the God-man satisfied God's justice so that instead of God rightly demonstrating his wrath towards sinful man, he demonstrated his mercy. And so because of our sin, because of, God's a holy God, he's justly uh, at wrath. He's, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're enemies of the cross because of our sin. 
God who is holy, and here we are as sinners. And Jesus Christ makes that propitiation. He makes that reconciliation for us so that God's wrath is no longer on you and I because of what Christ did as our faithful high priest. And as our high priest, he's merciful because he was tempted and suffered. He knows what you and I are going through. He knows the temptations that we face. He knows the suffering that we've endured. He knows what our struggles are. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3. This is a, a prophecy of the Messiah. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. That means he's not good looking. He's nothing really to look at. He's not like, well, that's Messiah quality, you know. That guy make a good Messiah. He looks like one. There's nothing, there's nothing comely about him. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what grief is. He knows what sorrows are. And, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Have you ever had someone like not want to look at you or not want to be around you because of your faith or who you are? They just, they just don't like you, so you know, they, they, they avoid you. Have you ever had that? I'm sure you have. We all have. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. I know there are people that look down on us. They look down on you for whatever reason. You're not esteemed in their eyes. So, you know, we, we've all experienced those things as humans. With Jesus Christ, our merciful high priest, he's experienced all that too. Listen, that's why he is superior to the angels, because of his glorious humanity. Listen, an archangel has never shed a tear. An archangel's never shed a tear. The seraphim have never felt pain. A cherub has never known human grief, human disappointment, human rejection or woe. An angel has never died. But Jesus Christ, our merciful high priest, fully God and fully man, he experienced that. And so whatever you're going through this morning, whatever, however you feel like, you know, you feel like nobody likes you, everybody hates you, I'm going to go eat some worms or something, you know, you just feel bad about it. Listen, Jesus Christ experienced all that. He shed tears. He's wept. He was put down and looked down upon. The son, our faithful, merciful high priest, has experienced all those things. So why does the Son's glorified humanity make him greater than the angels? Well, his humanity is why the Father is going to put the world to come in subjection to him. His humanity enables him to bring many sons to glory. And his, his humanity enables him to defeat the devil. And his humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest. That's what we see in Christ Jesus this morning. Let me go, Lord, in prayer.